You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. All right, guys, it is great to be here with you. Like Justin said, my name is Andy Wood, uh, and my wife, Grace, and I have been members here at Citizens since summer of 2020. Uh, We have three-year-old twin sons, Eli and Manny. I think we're going to have a picture up on the screen. There's us. Uh, So if you've ever been talking to someone at Citizens and you felt something just crash into the back of your legs, and then you turn around and there's just like a brown giggling blur sprinting away from you, that was one of my children. I am sorry. Uh, that's life in the Wood household. Uh, Now, being a dad to three-year-old boys is full of magical moments, hugs and wrestling and giggles. It's so great. It's also full of TV shows and movies aimed at three-year-olds, which is decidedly not great. Uh, For every one Bluey, there is five PJ Masks. And if you don't get those references, you will. You will one day, my friends. Enjoy your life now. I've thought about it because you have a lot to think about while you're watching PJ Masks and Spider-Man. The reason I don't like these television shows and movies aimed at three-year-olds is because they're so straightforward. You've got good guys, you've got bad guys, you've got a very simple problem, a very simple solution. We all have cookies at the end, rinse and repeat. It is really boring. I like twists. My three favorite movies of all time Shawshank Redemption, Usual Suspects, and Ocean's Eleven, all three involve a massive (gasps) twist. And I'm not going to ruin them for you because some of you perhaps haven't yet seen those movies, but just know there are twists and they're awesome. I love twists. Twists take your expectations and they turn them over against you and they really land a storytelling punch. But twists are actually older than M. Night Shyamalan. Twists are older than Hollywood. There are twists in the Bible. For example, one of perhaps the most famous and maybe the most powerful twist in the entire Bible comes from the story of David and Bathsheba. David has sinned sexually with Bathsheba. He's had her husband Uriah murdered and he thinks he's gotten away with it. And he's sitting in his palace smug and self-satisfied and the prophet Nathan comes to him. And Nathan tells him a story about a rich man who has stolen the only beloved lamb from his poor neighbor and slaughtered the lamb and David smug and self-satisfied, pounds on the table and says, that man should die for what he's done. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. And David is devastated. It was a twist and it leveled him. Twists are wonderful tools used in scripture. And our prophet for consideration today, Amos, is one of the very best at using twists. So Amos was a prophet to the Northern kingdom of Israel. And he spoke to them, warning them that the day they were hoping and praying for, the day of the Lord, was coming soon. But here's the twist. The Lord is not coming to rescue you. The Lord is coming to judge you. Now, I just said that Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, teaching about the day of the Lord. And for some of us in the room, every word of that sentence makes us break out in a cold sweat right? Prophets, Northern Kingdom, Day of the Lord, why did I come to church this morning? And if that's you, I've been there. But hang with me, because I believe, we believe here at this church that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out and inspired and is profitable for us. And that includes 
Amos. Amos was given to the people of Israel 2,700 years ago, but Amos is a word for us today. My goal this morning is to help all of us worship Jesus because of Amos. And I believe that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do exactly that. And in fact, I have a bigger goal. I want us to not only understand Amos, but I want us to be able to walk out of here and profitably read all of the books of the prophets. I want us to be able to understand the day of the Lord. Friends, the prophets and the day of the Lord are not concepts for pastors and PhDs. They are given to God's people. They are given to us for our benefit. So let's look first and answer the question about what does it mean that Amos is a book of prophecy? So perhaps when you hear the word prophet, you might imagine some guy in a dark room with like a purple robe with stars and moons and a pointy hat and a beard and he's waving his hands over a crystal ball or maybe he's reading the lines of your palm. Maybe you think of a billboard you saw about someone who could tell you when Jesus was coming back with great accuracy, they promise. Or maybe you think of someone you saw on television who for three easy payments of $49.99 can tell you exactly what stocks you should invest in. All of those might come to mind when I say the word prophet, but friends, that's not what a biblical prophet is. When God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he took them to Mount Sinai in order to enter into a special relationship with them. This relationship was called a covenant. In a covenant, two parties bind themselves to one another, making mutual commitments to each other. This covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, you'll often hear it called the Mosaic Covenant after Moses, who brought it down from the mountain, or you might know it as the Old Covenant in contrast to the New Covenant that we're a part of. But this covenant was made by God with the nation of Israel. And it's not something that God just did on a whim because he had nothing else to do on a three-day weekend. This covenant that God made is actually a part of that eternal plan that we've been teaching about in Ephesians talking about the fullness of time, God's will in Christ Jesus to unite all things in him. This covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai was a huge step forward in God's plan to redeem and rescue his world through Jesus. Now in this covenant made with the nation of Israel, God lays down two options and only two. If you are faithful If you keep his word, then he will pour out blessings upon blessings upon blessings on the nation of Israel, not just for their benefit. They were to be blessed in order to be a light to the nations, to draw the nations to the people of Yahweh so that they can enjoy the blessing of God. That's option one. Option two, if they're unfaithful, If they do not keep God's word, despite his patience, despite his warnings, God will pour out covenant curses on them so severe that he says, when people look at you, they will shudder. And he will do this to his people, though he loves them, to demonstrate to the world that he is a holy God. He cannot be ignored. He cannot be taken for granted. This is how Moses puts it to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 19. Moses says to them, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, binary options. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, you shall surely 
perish. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Friends, there's a lot of times we're offered options by people uh, who don't really care which one we pick. That lady at the coffee shop doesn't really care if you want whipped cream or not. She's just asking you, it's part of her job. But God desperately wants his people to choose life. He deeply desires that we would choose life, but life can only be found through submission to God's authority. The choice is put before Israel, obey or disobey. And the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings record which choice Israel made. With a few exceptions, the 900 years of history from the Exodus up until the exile from the promised land are a long string of failures. And during this 900 years of failing, God begins to send prophets to his people, Israel. And the prophets are not primarily concerned with telling the future. The prophets are God's prosecuting attorneys. The prophets come to the people of Israel and they hold up the terms of the covenant at Sinai and say, this is what you said you would do and you are not doing it. And if you do not repent, here's what's going to happen to you. So do the prophets predict the future? Yes, but only to motivate obedience in the present. They predict the future to motivate obedience in the present. And this common shape for all of the prophets is helpful because all 15 of the prophets, and we're gonna leave Daniel to the side because he's kind of his own thing. All 15 books of the prophets have the same fourfold message. Now, Kate's got an amazing graphic that she's gonna show you. Uh, you don't have to write this stuff down because she's gonna put this in the weekly email. So for my note takers out there, relax for a second. This will be sent to you. So here's the fourfold message of the prophets. One, you've broken the covenant. Whether it was idolatry, sexual immorality, abuse, neglect of the poor, hypocritical religious performance, the prophets would accuse Israel of specific covenant violations. Part two, repent. According to the prophets, God does not want to be bribed he doesn't want to be ignored. He can't be pacified. He wants his people to turn from their sins and give themselves to him, their loving redeemer. Three, if you don't repent, judgment is coming. Deuteronomy 28 lays out for the people of Israel in over 50 verses of detail exactly what God will do to them if they don't wake up to the danger of their sin. Could be famine, could be drought, could be plague, could be conquest by foreigners, but God is gonna judge his people for their sins. Four, there's hope. And there is hope, not because the prophets think the people of Israel are gonna get their act together. They know they're not. There is hope because God is faithful. And God has said, I'm gonna bring glory to myself through redeeming and rescuing through my son, Jesus. And I'm not gonna let anyone's sin keep that from happening. The 15 prophets may say this using different images. They may say this in a different order, but this is it. This is the message of the prophets. And in fact, we can go one step further and make it even simpler. There's only two kinds of passages in the prophets, judgment or hope. So every time you read a prophet, every time you read a paragraph of a prophet, and they may be talking about Leviathan, they may be talking about plague and locusts, and you're thinking, what in the world's happening? Stop and ask yourself this question. Here's the question you should ask. What's the tone of this passage? Friends, the prophets were a lot of things. Subtle was not one of them. It will be readily apparent to everyone. Is this a judgment passage or is this a hope passage? 
Now, if you're reading a judgment passage, ask yourself this question. Where do I see the same sinful patterns in my life? We are so quick to think of the people of Israel as being worse than us, as if we would never. We would. We do. So where do we see the same sinful patterns? And then what would repentance look like? God's warning them. He's warning you. But if it's a hope passage, ask yourself this question. How is that hope ultimately fulfilled in Jesus? If it's about restoration to the land, if it's about forgiveness, if it's about the new covenant, if it's about the spirit, if it's about the forgiveness of sins, how does that point me to Jesus? And then last question, what would it look like for me to live like I believe in that hope? That's how we read the prophets. That's how you read Amos. That's how you read Ezekiel. That's how you read the prophets. Now, the second concept we need to explain is the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a technical term but with a really simple meaning. The day of the Lord describes pivotal moments in history when God brings his judgment on the wicked and rescues the righteous. He brings his judgment on the wicked. He rescues the righteous. The flood was a day of the Lord. Sodom and Gomorrah was a day of the Lord. The Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. These are all days of the Lord. Now, we know David, the great king of Israel, the first great king of Israel. When David died, his son Solomon takes the throne. And when Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. You've got Israel in the north, that's where Amos is gonna be speaking, and Judah in the south. And the people of both Israel and Judah never regain their former strength. Both of them get smacked around by bigger empires that you've seen when you've read the book of Kings or when you've read the prophets, Assyria and Babylon. And as this happened, the people of Israel began to look back at their history and begin to hope that perhaps the day of the Lord could come again. Maybe God might come and rescue them. And by the time we get to Amos's day, the belief had settled in that the day of the Lord was coming and God would rescue them because they're Abraham's family. And so it doesn't matter how we live. We can do whatever we want. God loves us because we're the children of Abraham. And Amos is sent to shatter that illusion. Amos 5, 18 through 20 says this, "'Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord.'" Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. It's as if a man fled from a lion and he thinks, whew, got away from the lion. And then a bear met him. And he runs from the bear and he hides in his house and thinks, whoo, that was a close call. And he leans against a wall and a snake bites him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? On the day of the Lord, my friends, your ethnic identity, your religious activity, the fact that your dad or grandfather was a pastor or your mom leads Bible studies is not gonna save you. Only those who've trusted in the promises of Yahweh can be saved on the day of the Lord. And this is the message of Amos. The day of the Lord is being sent by Yahweh on the wicked and it points us to Jesus. So we've now laid the groundwork to study the book of Amos. So let's begin. To begin with, Amos affirms that the day of the Lord will be sent by God. So what does Amos tell us about the God who's sending the day of the Lord? First, Amos shows us that God is personal. When you're reading in your Bible and you see something that looks like this, Amos 1-2, and it says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. You'll notice that the word Lord is in that all uppercase, kind of lower, smaller uppercase. And that tells you that what you're actually reading there is the personal name of God, Yahweh, 
This is the name he revealed to Mount or to Moses on Mount Sinai. And this is the name he is to be known. Think of it this way to kind of help you keep this straight. God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim is actually a formal title. Yahweh or the Lord, that's his name. Like in America, we call the president, Mr. President. That's a title. His wife gets to call him Joe Biden. That's his name. God, title, Lord, name. This God is personal. Now, other than racking up points in Bible trivia, why does that detail matter? This detail matters because the whole purpose for God revealing himself to Israel was so that he could be in a special, a unique relationship with them. And this is the God that they're sinning against. In the American justice system, when you're put on trial, it's the state of Alabama versus Andy Wood or the United States of America versus Justin Carl. But not so. Not so in God's economy. Israel's sins are not against an impersonal justice system. They are against a personal God. And he is deeply grieved and mightily offended at their sin. Amos tells us God is sending the day of the Lord and God is personal. Second, Amos tells us that God is holy. Amos 2.7, which we'll speak about later today, is a denunciation of Israel's sins. And the result of their sin in the world, before the whole world, is that God says his holy name has been profaned, made dirty. To be holy, most of us think we go straight to moral perfection. And that's true, but there's more to this word. To be holy means to be unique, one of a kind. There is no other God but God. There is no God like God. To be holy also means to be separate, to be greater than, to be lifted up, worthy of honor and glory. And God's holiness was not just a fact to be filed away. The Israelites were to build their life around God's holiness. Leviticus 19.2 Moses says this to the people, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So think about what Israel is doing when they sin. They are disregarding God's moral purity. They are not treating God as unique, but they're treating God just like all the other nations treat their gods. They are not treating God with the awe, the reverence, the fear that God's nature calls for. But unfortunately for Israel, God's holiness is not powerless. The holy God is the almighty God. The holy God is the just God. The holy God is the wrathful God, wrathful against sin. God's holiness means that he will not tolerate sin in his presence. And his strength means that he actually can do something about sin in his presence. He will remove Israel. He's not gonna lower his standards for them or for anybody. He is personal, he is holy, and he is the Lord of hosts. Amos 5.15 says, hate evil and love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Hosts, in this context, refers to angelic armies at God's beck and call. This title, Lord of hosts, comes from combining God's personal name, Yahweh, Lord of, with some other trait. And the upshot of all this, friends, is that what Amos is telling us is that God's command of all the armies of heaven is a part of who he is and therefore will always be true. Being able to do his will is not something that every once in a while God can pull off. It is something that he is always capable of. To think again in terms of our system of government, 
the president of the United States only has authority as commander in chief during his term of office. When he leaves office, he can no longer you know, command a drone strike or order an invasion. Right? His authority is bounded by time, but not so with God. He is now and forever the God who can do all that his will decrees. Now, for Amos's original audience, and I hope for us today, this trait of God serves as both a carrot and a stick. If Israel persists in their rebellion, Amos is asking them, he's asking us, do you realize who you're going up against? You have no chance against the Lord of hosts. He spoke a universe into being. You don't think he can handle you? You don't think he can deal with our rebellion? That's the stick. But the carrot comes at the end of that verse. God says, if you will obey, I long to be gracious to you. All of that power of God will be being used for our benefit, for our protection. Somewhere along the line, the people of Israel stopped depending on God for their security. They stopped depending on God for their satisfaction. They copied their neighbors and they found their security in money, in military alliances, in military power. They look to possessions and sex for satisfaction. And that's how the world operates. And it makes sense from a worldly perspective. Amos is calling on his people. God is calling on us to open our eyes to an unseen reality. For those who trust in God, greater is he that is in them that is in the world. But the fourth thing that Amos tells us about God is that he's patient. After delivering five chapters of judgment against Israel, Amos tells us about a three-part vision that he's given. In the first two parts of the vision, Amos has shown possible ways that God could destroy the people of Israel. And it's ways that God had already said he might do in Deuteronomy. He sees a locust swarm. He sees drought. In both visions, Amos prays and God relents. God shows patience toward his wayward people. He gives them more time to repent. And we all come from different places. We all have different images of God in our mind. And for many of us, perhaps, we imagine God is sitting up in heaven, finger poised above the lightning bolt button, just eager to hit it and smite someone. But there's nothing further from the truth. God is patient, so patient toward us. In fact, I'm gonna quote from another prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's prophesying about 200 years after Amos. And Ezekiel shares with us how God feels about his sinful people. Ezekiel 18, 31 and 32, this is God speaking. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. Turn and live God does not want to come against us in wrath. He wants to pursue us with his love. But if we will not repent, wrath is unavoidable. God's love has no end. It has no bottom. But God's patience does have a limit. For those who will not repent, God's patience will end. Because there's a third part of Amos' vision. God shows him a judgment and there's no turning back. The judgment falls and it is a righteous and true judgment. So the day of the Lord is sent by God, personal, holy, almighty, patient, and it's bad news for the wicked. So who are the wicked? Well, in Amos chapter one, you're a little bit surprised because Amos says that he's a prophet sent to the Northern kingdom of Israel. But Amos begins not by denouncing Israel, but by denouncing the nations. 
What gives? Well, there's two reasons. The first is that Amos is reminding Israel and reminding us in the room today that God is the God of all people. He is the one to whom we will all give account, whether you worship him or not. Friends, we all have family members. We all have neighbors. We all have coworkers who live their life as if it's possible to have nothing to do with God. Friends, everyone will have something to do with God. Everyone will stand before him. Everyone will give an account. And friends, this is why we send missionaries. This is why we send the Nashes. This is why we send the O'Neills. This is why we send Emily, because there are people in Bangkok. There are people, tens of millions of people in Istanbul who do not know God, but they will stand before him and they must be told. They can't believe, they can't call on the one who might save them if they don't hear. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because Amos is a literary genius. Amos is speaking to a people who have a very high opinion of their own status and worth. And so he comes to them, he gathers a crowd, and he begins to denounce their neighbors. And it's as if, you know, Pastor Justin's really bringing that word, he's bringing it hot. And Brother Denzel, who I wish hadn't just stepped out, Brother Denzel's in here. And every time Justin says something, Brother Denzel's like, my God, yes, yes, Lord, right? He's feeling it, he's feeling it. So Ezekiel, or sorry, my apologies, Amos begins to preach, you, Tire and the audience roars, yes. Edom, yes. Syria, yes. And you over there, the Philistines, yes, the Philistines. And they're feeling it, they're loving this. And then Amos says, and you, Israel, there's the twist. Because the rest of the book is not about the Philistines. The rest of the book is not about Tyre or Syria. The rest of the book is about Israel and their sins. The day of the Lord is bad news for the wicked. No matter what it says on your birth certificate, no matter what it says on your bank account, the day of the Lord is bad news for the wicked. The wicked are those who don't love Yahweh, who don't live for Yahweh, and that includes Israel. So what has Israel done to be included in the wicked? Well, the first thing that Amos points to is that they have despised and ignored their privileged position. Amos 3, 1 and 2 says this, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Israel had despised and rejected God's election of them, God's choosing of them from all the nations on the earth. And they had forgotten his redemption of them from slavery. They turned their back on God. But friends, humans were created to worship. And since they have rejected the worship of the true God, there is no one on this earth, no matter what they say, there is no one who worships nothing. And since the people of Israel will not worship the true God, they turn and they worship idols. This is what Amos 5, 26 and 27 says, you shall take up Sikath your king and key on your star God, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Now, just like in the Garden of Eden, where we see this vertical relationship between God and humans broken, and then immediately we have blame shifting and hiding leading to murder in Genesis chapter four. When the vertical relationship is broken, the horizontal relationships aren't gonna last long. And so the vast majority of accusations and indictments that Amos brings against Israel is because of their, fellow, their treatment of fellow Israelites. 
God hates it when the strong abuse the weak and his wrath is gonna come against those who do so. But friends, the fundamental problem for Israel, the fundamental problem for everyone is idolatry. They have turned from the worship of the true God. And when we do this, when we turn from the worship of the true God, we always worship an idol. But here's the great thing about idols. They let us do whatever we want. If we worship an idol, we're worshiping our own sinful desires, our own base animal urges. And the gods that we create for ourselves never call us to perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, for sacrificial generosity towards the least of these. Only the true God does that. So see the progression. We turn from the true God, we worship idols, we abuse our fellow image bearers. So when we read, as we will in just a moment, about Israel's sins against their fellow Israelites, understand that these are symptoms of a deeper heart problem. So what are they doing to one another? Well, in Amos and in the other prophets, to be honest, the major sins of the people of Israel are both sexual immorality and abuse or neglect of the poor. Amos 2.7 says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Now, this is obviously a vile act, and we're right to see an argument from the greater to the lesser. In other words, if the Israelites are comfortable sinning like this, they're pretty comfortable having sex before marriage. If they're comfortable doing this, faithfulness to your spouse is an afterthought. Lust in your heart and your mind is an afterthought. They're certainly sinning in other ways that we might find less spectacular, but God finds no less offensive. God's design for sexuality and marriage has been lost in Israel. The idols of Israel, our idols today, they tell us that we can gratify our sexual urges. We're just having fun. We're just expressing ourselves. No one's getting hurt. Those idols were lying to Israel. Those idols are lying to us. On judgment day, everyone stands before King Jesus and our idols, which are deaf and dumb and blind, will not speak up to defend us and will not be able to protect us. We are told to flee from sexual sins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that everyone who is sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Flee sexual sin. But if Amos is known in our day, he is known as the prophet who addresses the abuse or neglect of the poor. And there's a good reason for that. That is the dominant sin that Amos condemns. For example, Amos 5, 11, and 12 says, therefore, because you trample on the poor, And Amos says, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And it's not just the men in Israelite society. The women of Israel have been willingly participating in the abuse of the poor. Amos 4.1 says, hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. When societies turn away, from the true God, they begin to act as less than human and the strong will devour the weak just like the animals do. In fact, Israelite society has become so corrupt, so far from the revealed will of God that even the very concept of justice and righteousness has been twisted and corrupted. Amos 6.12 says, the people of Israel have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, something bitter and disgusting. Now, in the prophets, you will often see justice and righteousness presented side by side. And those two terms are worth taking just a moment to explain and think about how they work together. 
Justice and righteousness are not synonyms for one another. They're not interchangeable, but they are inseparable. They're incredibly closely related. In this particular context, the context of the prophets, righteousness does not refer to the attribute of God that he, in fact, does possess. But righteousness in the prophets refers to the state of things measuring up to God's standard. You might imagine a ruler that goes along and measures everything. Just to give you a very simple example, when the sun rises in the east every morning, it's doing exactly what God made it to do. And in that regard, the sun is righteous. It measures up to God's standards. But Israelite society at the time of Amos does not meet God's standards, and therefore it is unrighteous. So that's righteousness. What is justice? Well, if you see unrighteousness, something bent and crooked, and you take concrete steps, which does involve prayer, my friends, that is a very concrete step. If you take concrete steps to bring what is bent and twisted back into line with God's righteousness, you are doing justice. And this distinction is so important for Christians to understand. Due to the fact that we, every human, is made in God's image, all of us, Christian and non-Christian, can look at a situation and say, that isn't right. Now, as a Christian, we might say that is an unrighteous state of affairs, and perhaps an unbeliever is not going to say unrighteous. But we can look at the same problem and say, something must be done about this. This is not right. But friends, remember, no matter how kind, no matter how loving, no matter how wonderful our neighbor is, if they don't know Jesus, their solution is not going to be to take something broken and to put it back into a God-honoring shape for the glory of Jesus Christ. They're going to want to fix it as they see it, but the shape they leave it in is not going to be what we can call righteous. We must be willing to stand side by side with people that we find uncomfortable standing side by side with and address a problem, but then we also have to be willing to stand side by side with other people that that first group of people doesn't like and say, but this is the solution we want. And you know what that's gonna guarantee? No one is going to like us. And that's okay. We're not called to be popular. We're called to be faithful. We are called to pursue justice and righteousness in a way that may cost us greatly, in fact, will cost us greatly, but it's worth it. So that's justice and righteousness. The day of the Lord is brought by Yahweh. It's bad news for the wicked, but the day of the Lord points us to Jesus. Because the day of the Lord doesn't stop at the end of the Old Testament. The New Testament has the day of the Lord as well, but with one massively significant change. The prophets of the Old Testament warn Israel about the day of the Lord over and over again. And the New Testament authors pick up that same image, but look what they add to it. 1 Corinthians 1.8 is just one of dozens of examples. Paul says, talking of Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord is the day of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord who is coming to rescue the righteous. Jesus is the Lord who is coming to condemn the wicked. And when he does, we're not left in the dark as to what it's going to be like. Paul describes it like this in 2 Thessalonians, starting in verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. 
since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. On judgment day, the day of the Lord Jesus, when he is revealed, only those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ will be spared from the wrath of the lamb. Now for 2000 years, that's been the hope of the church. It's what we sing about, it's what we pray about. And for 2000 years, people have laughed at us for saying that. For 2000 years, people have thought the fact that Christians believe that some man is gonna come down in heaven to be a laughable notion. Even just 30 short years after the resurrection of Jesus, scoffers and mockers were already laughing at Christians for believing in this. And so 2 Peter is written in part to explain why the delay and what should Christians say when people begin to laugh at us for believing that the Lord Jesus is coming back. Well, Peter gives us the reason for the delay in 2 Peter 3.9. Here's what he says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The God of the Old Testament the God of the New Testament are the same God. He is a patient God who desires people to repent, who desires to embrace people with his love. But Peter doesn't just say God's waiting because he wants people to repent. He then tells us how we should live while we're waiting. He says, in essence, live like you believe that Jesus could come back today. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since everything that we treasure is gonna pass away, what sort of people ought you, ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? We taught earlier this summer about the Lord's Prayer. And friends, this is one of the beautiful things about praying the Lord's Prayer. We're reminded every day to ask for God's kingdom to come. And it reminds us every day that it will. And we better be living today. We want to be found busy at the work of our Lord when he returns. So we're called to be citizens of heaven, living as exiles here on earth, but also feet firmly planted in Roebuck Springs. If we wanna seek the good of Birmingham, my friends, then we had better be people longing for the return of the Lord Jesus. That is how we will do the greatest good here in Birmingham. What sort of people ought we to be if we believed that Jesus could come back at any moment? Friends, there's one more twist I wanna tell you about because Jesus is going to bring the day of the Lord to rescue his people, to redeem his world and judge everyone who hasn't turned from their sins and trusted in him but there's one more day of the Lord we wanna remember because 2000 years ago, Jesus came and he endured the day of the Lord on the cross. And it was the ultimate twist because the day of the Lord is supposed to be good news for the righteous and bad news for the wicked. But here is the only righteous man who ever lived suffering under the wrath of God. And he did it to rescue us, the wicked. This is good news. This is the good news. Jesus endured the day of the Lord on behalf of the sexually immoral, the greedy, and the cruel. He endured the wrath of God so that when he comes back on the final day of the Lord, we can be spared. So friends, if you're here today visiting, we are so glad that you're here. 
And maybe you came in exploring Christianity. You're not quite sure where you land on all this day of the Lord business. Or maybe you came in thinking that you were a Christian, but something is stirring in your heart. Whatever the situation you find yourself in this morning, please make today the day that you grab hold of Jesus and let his righteousness stand for you.